On Sunday nights, we're studying the book of John, and I invite you to take a copy of God's Word and look with us. Our passage found in the book of John, chapter 4. In the book of John, chapter 4, and we'll begin reading with verse 43. As you're turning to this chapter, I remind you that one of the purposes of John, John tells us what it is. He says, I want you to know that Jesus is God. I write these things that you may know. And so he is laying the foundation that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God. And he's showing us how we can understand that looking at what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And so now we come to the story, beginning in verse 43. Jesus has already had the uh, dealing with the Samaritans, and there was revival there. Uh, he's already had the dealings with Nicodemus, one of the uh, chief uh, uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem. And now we pick up verse 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore, he came again to the Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he first began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story that we've just read, a reminder, Father, of the power of our Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we pray tonight that as we look at this passage, Father, help us to understand our faith, and Father, how to increase it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Samuel Morris Started out as a painter, but you know him probably for something else. He was also an inventor. He was the inventor of the Morse code. In 1825, he was in Washington, D.C. to paint a portrait of Lafayette, the Frenchman who helped America during the Revolutionary War. While he was there, he was working on the project. He received a message delivered by a man on a horse, and the message said this from his father, your dear wife is convalescent. Immediately, he rushed out of Washington. He went to his home in New Haven to find out that his wife, Susan, age 25, had not only died, they had already buried her. He had not received word. He did not realize that she had been sick for the week. He did not realize that she really died alone. And he was devastated. 
In fact, that was the moment he stopped painting and started working on a mechanism that you could send messages long distances. He became obsessed with distant communication. Now, you know the rest of the story. It was on May 24th, 1844, a large crowd outside the Capitol. And they did the Morse code, tapping the Morse code. Went to Baltimore. Baltimore received it 38 miles away and received it and then sent it back. And the message was actually from the Bible, what hath God wrought? Samuel Morse was obsessed with overcoming distances. And I have to admit, probably in 21st century America, we don't think about it often, do we? Hard to comprehend distances because we can get places fast. Our, our children are, are hours and hours and hours away. But on a, on a plane, a jet, we can get there in about three or four hours. We don't think about distances. We don't realize that 100 years ago, a message could only get as fast as the messenger. It was the speed of ships. It was the speed of trains. It was the speed of horses. We don't realize that when George Washington died on December 14th, 1799, it took weeks for the message to get to Virginia, to New York, and many Americans did not even know the death of George Washington into the 1800s. When the Pony Express was founded, they could travel 75 miles, but it still took them uh, 10 days to go from Missouri to California. We forget I mean, we were spoiled to, to Wi-Fi and cell phones. I mean, my goodness, when we were in Bangkok, I was talking to my wife on the phone immediately. Even when uh, communication was tough, when we were in Malawi, we didn't have good Internet reception. But there was that time when we could get on, the, on a certain place at a certain location, and we could send messages. And around the world, they heard our messages. So it really is hard for us to understand the importance of distances. That's why this miracle is even more amazing when you consider the time frame. Jesus did not go touch this person. Jesus did not go speak to this person. Jesus did not go see this person. He healed the person by saying the words. And 20 miles away, the child was healed. Tonight, I want to look at this passage and notice the lessons on faith that we can take from it. The first lesson is this. In faith, we need to turn to Jesus in a crisis. In faith, we need to turn to Jesus in a crisis. John is telling the story. He's laying this foundation. Notice he mentions a certain place, verse 46. Therefore, he came again to to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago in chapter 2. Remember how Jesus turned the water into wine. And so, John is really contrasting these miracles. The water and wine, uh, in that chapter 2, it was power over nature. Here is power over disease. In, in John chapter 2, it was a time of joy. It was a wedding. Here it's a time of sorrow. Someone's dying. In John chapter 2, it was, it was a time of pleasure. Again, a wedding. Here it was relief suffering. In John chapter 2, it was power over time. Jesus did it immediately. Here it was over space. And so John is showing us this contrast, this certain place that at Cana, the miracle that he did there, it spread. Everybody was talking about it. This man heard about it, and now he's back. But he also mentioned a certain person, verse 46. He said, there was a royal official whose son was sick. Now, that word royal official, some translation put the word nobleman. It literally means a king's man. This was an official in the court of King Herod. This was a man of power. This was a man who had a lot of influence. And yet his child was sick. 
I mean, here's a man who had power, he had prestige, he had uh, the position, and yet he had no authority over sickness. He could not escape the troubles from the world. You know, sometimes I think we forget we're going to have trouble in the world. I, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many degrees you have. I, I don't care how many friends you have. We are going to face trouble in this world. And so here's John laying this foundation about this certain man in this certain place. And then he says he has a certain problem. Again, in verse 46, his son was sick at Capernaum. His son was sick at Capernaum. John mentions two problems. The first problem, the son was sick. The second problem, he was in Capernaum. The first problem is my son is sick. The second problem is he's 20 miles away. We got to hurry. This man had no, no power to do anything. He had a problem. You know, again, we're spoiled in the 21st century reading this. In this society, they really didn't have, again, modern medicine. They didn't have penicillin. Uh, their medicine was crude at best. And yet we forget how blessed we are. I, I love American history. I love history. One of the most tragic occurrences that ever happened to a first family was the death of 16-year-old Calvin Coolidge Jr. on June 7, 1924. His death occurred in a very unusual, strange way. He died because of an infected blister on his toe from playing tennis. He died three days after his father's 52nd birthday. He died in the middle of a presidential election in 1924, and it caused a national sadness. Calvin Coolidge Jr. was playing tennis, and he developed a blister on his right foot, on his toe. Well, he didn't tell anyone about it because, after all, it was just a blister. But by the next day, it was getting worse, and it was stiff and painful. They called in the doctor. Remember, this is the, the president doctor. He comes in, and, and the doctor realized it's septic. In those days, they didn't have antibiotics like we would. It would be easy to cure today. They didn't know what to do, so they tried different things. For example, they pumped his stomach. They did surgery. They did other treatments they thought would work, but nothing worked. He just got worse and worse. They tried everything they could, and then on July 7th, Calvin Coolidge Jr. became delirious. His last words, I surrender. He went into a coma and died four hours later. The most powerful man couldn't do anything. And only if they had the antibiotics. You see, we read these stories like that, and we forget they didn't have good medicine. This man is coming to Jesus because my son is sick, and he is dying. Here's this noble man. Again, this man full of power and position. He had no power over sickness. And the Bible reminds us in Job chapter 14, verse 1, man, is born, man who is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. And so Jesus is at Cana. His son is in Capernaum. There's 20 miles separating them. He comes to Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. He heard about the miracles of Jesus. And in a crisis, he found Jesus. Don't be surprised if you pray for someone to find Jesus 
they don't go into a crisis. Okay, listen very carefully. Sometimes, I, I, I see this all the time. People say, Pastor, I'm, I'm praying for someone. I'm praying for a son, a daughter, a parent, a grandparent, or a coworker. And then all of a sudden, they, they call me. You know, hey, they're in a crisis. Well, you prayed for Jesus. Well, guess what? In a crisis, you look for Jesus. And sometimes we, as believers, we can get sloppy in our walk. Sometimes we get lax in our faith. And sometimes it takes a crisis to wake us up to put our eyes on Jesus. And so we need to realize in a time of a crisis, we will go to Jesus. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The Bible says sometimes it's good that we go through a crisis because in a crisis, we turn to Jesus. In a crisis, we learn about God's word. And so here's this man. He comes to Jesus. It says his son was sick at Capernaum. In, in the Greek language, it's imperfect. It means he's getting worse and worse and worse. And out of desperation, he said, I'm, I'm coming to you. And verse 47 when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea, he went to him and was imploring him, begging him. That word means over and over and over. He's just constantly begging Jesus, you got to come. You got to come. I mean, crisis brings clarity. When you have a crisis, you see the clarity that only God can help. And not only that, he's telling Jesus what to do. He is saying, you have to come, implore him to come down to heal the son. Now, interesting, when Mary came to Jesus with a problem, she didn't tell Jesus what to do. What she told Jesus, we have a problem. She left it up to Jesus. This man tells Jesus what to do, but Jesus didn't do exactly what the man said. You don't have to tell Jesus what to do in a crisis, but you do have to bring your crisis to Jesus. Secondly, in faith, we do not need a sign from God. In faith, we do not need a sign from God. Kind of interesting what Jesus says in verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, he's not just talking to this man. He's really talking to the crowd because those word you that in that verse you is plural. So he's not just talking to the man. He's talking to everyone. He says to this man, pointing to the people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. In other words, they want to see a show. They want to see signs. They want me to come. They want to see something. They're not interested in salvation. They're interested in signs. They don't care about worship. They just care about wonders. Jesus is rebuking the crowd saying, you're looking at the wrong thing. Jesus is saying, you don't need a sign. You need a Savior. You really don't even need a miracle. You need the Messiah. And he's saying to this crowd, why are you looking for a sign? You don't need a sign to see me. Because anytime we ask for a sign, it's basically saying we doubt God. You say, how do you believe that? Because Jesus said it. Luke chapter, nine, Luke chapter 11, verse 29. He said, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. Our Lord equates wickedness with seeking signs. What is he saying? He's saying the word of God should be enough. We don't need signs. God himself should be enough. We don't need signs. In our faith, sometimes, Lord, give me a sign. Well, he's already told you. Just trust his word. And Jesus recognized the people were more interested in the power of Jesus than in the person of Jesus. And we're going to see that later in the story. 
The people followed Jesus to see miracles. They, they followed Jesus sometimes to see something amazing. And Jesus always criticized them for that. They were more interested in what Jesus could do for them than what Jesus could do in them. And this is a truth we really have to understand. God wants us to worship him and not his miracles. Because if you worship his miracles, you want more and more and more of the miracles and less and less of God. If I worship God, I will trust God no matter what happens. But if I worship the miracles, it must always happen the way I want it to happen. I've told the story before, and she's one of my heroes, Johnny Erickson Tata. She was the lady who became a quadriplegic when she was 17 years old. She went off to college. Her and her sister decided to go for a swim in Chesapeake Bay. The night before, Johnny had brown hair. The night before, she dyed her hair, became blonde. That day, when they were in the Chesapeake Bay, they went and swam out to a raft. And, and right before Johnny j jumped in the water, she remembered her sister had her back toward her. And so when Johnny dived into the water, her head hit the bottom, I mean, severing her spinal cord. And she was face down in the water, totally unable to right herself up. She was drowning. And all she could think about, my sister is not going to see me. That's all she said. That's all I could think about. My sister had her back to me. I'm drowning. At the same time the sister was coming out of the water, a crab pinched her toe. And she turned around to tell Johnny, be careful, there's crabs. And all she saw was the blonde hair floating on the water. And she swam out there and got Johnny out of the water. Johnny was paralyzed from the neck down. And she was mad at God. She was outraged. She was in a hospital for a year and a half, feeling angry and depressed. She said at the second year mark, something happened. She prayed a short prayer. She said, God, if I cannot die, please show me how to live. You're going to have to show me how to live. The next morning, her sister came into the room, and Johnny said, will you pull back the drapes and put some light in here, and we just turn on the lights, and, and let's find a wheelchair. I'm going to live. Johnny tells that story many times, and she said, was there a miracle? She said, oh, there was a miracle. The miracle, I, I, I had blonde hair that day. If I didn't have blonde hair, she would not have seen me. Uh, there was a miracle that it just so happened that crowd pinched my uh, sister on the toe, or she would not have turned around. Did God heal me? No, he didn't heal me. But the miracle was... I found life in Jesus. The miracle is I learned to love God more than his miracles. I learned to love God more than the signs. She realized she wanted a miracle when she, what she really needed was the Messiah. And we need Jesus and we need his miracles, but we don't need signs. We simply need to believe. Third, in faith, we need to be obedient. We need to be obedient. Jesus says to him, Verse 49, the, the royal officials said to him, Sir, come down, my child dies. And Jesus said, verse 50, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. 
Why did Jesus do that? Why didn't Jesus go with him? Now, there are a couple of reasons. Maybe he didn't want to go to Capernaum, have a crowd. Maybe uh, he realized how desperate it was. But I submit he was doing it for the Father. I submit he was working on the Father's faith. I submit he was more concerned about the Father's faith than probably anything else at this point. Because God is concerned about our faith. Tonight, God is more concerned about your faith than anything else in your life. God is more concerned about your faith than your finances. God, God is more uh, concerned with your faith and your fitness. God is more concerned with your faith than, than anything else. He wants you to grow in your faith. And to do that, he will give us things to see if we will obey because in our obedience, our faith will grow. He says to this man, go, your son lives. Now, I want you to think about if you were the father. You've traveled 20 miles to see Jesus. Jesus says, go, your son lives. What do you do? Because to go 20 miles, you have to leave Jesus. You know the only person that can help you is Jesus. So if I go 20 miles and I get to the home and he's not healed, I have to come back and I got to find Jesus. But if I don't leave, the only person that could help my son, I'm disobeying him. What would you do? What would you do if you walked all the way home with the fear that your wife is going to be there, kind of like Jack and the Beanstalk story? Uh, you believe that one? What would you do? It took faith and obedience for him to walk away when Jesus said, go, your son lives. What Jesus did, he drew a line in the sand for that father. Are you really going to believe my words? Then you got to go. And he's thinking, well, if I leave and go home, he'll be leaving the only one who can help him, and it'll be too late. If I don't leave, I'm refusing to listen to the one, the only one that can help me. What would you do? And the man doesn't ask for a sign. The man doesn't say, well, you, can you give me a sign? Can you give me a token? Can you, could you do something that should show me that this is true? The man simply turned and walked because he believed Jesus. St. Augustine said, faith is to be believed what we do not see, and the reward of faith is to see what we believe. You study the miracles in the Bible, almost every time there's obedience. There is a connection between us being obedient and miracles and faith in our lives. Jesus is teaching this man something extremely valuable. The man came believing that seeing is believing. But Jesus is going to teach him that believing is seeing. Seeing me. Trusting me. Our obedience determines consequences. And Jesus said, go, your son lives. The implication is, if you go, your son will live. The implication is, if you go, he's healed. And while Jesus was talking... His power went 20 miles away, and the boy was healed. It's 20 miles from, Caper from Cana to Capernaum. Now, the father could have arrived the same day, about seven hours. It would take me a lot longer. I don't walk that fast. But the miracle occurred at 1 p.m. He, boy, the, the servant said it happened the day before. So the father spent the night. I would have loved to have seen that man. Did he toss and turn? Or was he peaceful? 
as he slept. I would love to have seen how he slept that night. And so the man is going down. His servant comes up to him. Your son is living. So he inquired of the time when he began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew it was the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. You know, some miracles, Jesus would touch someone. Some miracles, Jesus just said a word. Some miracles, you had to be there. Some miracles, you didn't have to be there. Some miracles, Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven. Some miracles, he lowered his head. Jesus does miracles different ways, but he still does the miracle. And there's always faith and obedience involved. Finally, the final lesson, in faith, lives will be changed. In faith, lives will be changed. The greatest miracle in the story we read was not the son being healed. Okay? That's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is in 53. It says, he himself believed and his whole household. The family was converted. The healing miracle is awesome. The spiritual miracle is revolutionary. The greatest miracle is not the physical healing of the son. The greatest miracle is the spiritual healing of the entire family. You know why? Because physical healings, physical miracles don't stay. This boy is going to get sick again someday. This boy is going to die. Lazarus, raised from the dead, great physical miracle, but one day Lazarus died again. Physical miracles don't last, but spiritual miracles never go away. Now, I know if, if you study this passage, it looks like there's a contradiction because it says in verse 53, the father believed, but it says in verse 50, he believed. Same word, what does it mean? Well, John is showing us that there are different kinds of faith when you have a, in a relationship with God. For example, you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and not receive him as the Son of God. I know people. I know people who have told me, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I'm not giving him my life. They believe it intellectually, but they haven't believed him with their heart. And the Bible talks about these different levels, progression. So in, in verse 50, this man has a satisfied faith, but now in verse 53, he has a saving faith. In, in, in verse 47, he believed that if Jesus, that he believed that Jesus could heal the boy. In verse 50, he believed the word of Jesus. In, in verse 53, now he believed in Jesus. See the difference? At, at first, he believed in the promise of Jesus. And then he, he believed what Jesus said, and now he believed in Jesus is the Messiah. He believed he's the Savior. You see, he believed faith in the person, the power of Christ, uh, the power of Christ. He said, you can help my son. Then he believed in the promise of Christ. I believe you. I will go to see my son. And now he believed in the person of Christ. I accept you as Lord. This man went through the progressions of faith. You may be here, and maybe you're just at that level. You're believing maybe that Jesus is real, that he really was a person who lived on this planet. Maybe, that, maybe that's all you believe right now. But you keep looking at Jesus, you'll go to the next level, that Jesus said he was God. 
And you keep looking at Jesus, and you go to the next level, that, that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago, and he was buried, and the third day the body disappeared. What happened to the body? And you keep looking at it, you're going to realize that Jesus has to be God. And you keep looking at it, you come to that point where you realize, I need to give my life in a personal way to Jesus. That's what this family did. I know of nothing that demonstrates our faith in Jesus more than willing, willing to tell people about Jesus. This father told his family, let me tell you what Jesus did. And they believed Jesus was the Lord. Now, I don't know what your greatest need is tonight. I don't know what your greatest need tonight on those watching online. But here's what I know. The greatest need is really Jesus. That's your greatest need. See, you may be thinking tonight, I I need a miracle. I, I need something else. But no, what you need is Jesus. You need a personal relationship with Jesus. Because he loved you so much, he died for you. And he wants to spend eternity with you. And all he asks is you accept that gift by admitting that you're a sinner, believing he died for you, and giving him your life. Those of you online, if you would text the word today at 270-398-5005, and a minister will give you a call if you want to give your life to Jesus. For those who are here, maybe you're here tonight and you want to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you want to join this church. Maybe there's something you need to do privately between you and God at this moment. Because maybe you realize... I'm not really following the person of Jesus. I'm just looking for the power of Jesus. You need to find the person of Jesus because he loves you. Would you stand and bow your heads? Father in heaven, it's so often true that we look for your miracles. Father, we look for the miraculous when all we really need is you. Father, I pray that our Christian life would develop to the point that it's all, only, all about you and nothing else. Father, even if you never answer another one of our prayers, Father, that doesn't matter to us. We just want you. And Father, our love for you is not based on what you do for us. Our love is based upon who you are. And, Father, we have a long way to go. We understand that. But I pray, Father, you start tonight helping us get closer to you. And it begins, Father, with that person who's never given their life to you in a personal way. Let tonight be the night, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.